Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? Or what about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent, stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course the habitats and ecosystems as well, but what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. Angus, how are you going? Hi, Jodie. Great to catch up again. Yeah, you you are actually my my last podcast interview for 2021. Well, I finally got you. Let's hope 2022 is a better <laughs> year than 21's been. Oh, my goodness. I hope so too. So to everyone listening, we have Angus Emmett here who is a grazier naturalist biologist, bit of everything, Angus, I think you are. I've walked into your um, uh, the room that I wish I had, by the way, and I see that as, well, you've got your own library, you've got your own museum, you're like scientist and everything was in there. So I didn't really know what to call you. Well, I don't really know what to call me either, but I live out in the middle of nowhere in the outback and I don't have access to other people's libraries and I really need anything I am interested in I need to have my own stuff so yeah I've got a library and I work with the Queensland Museum oh man specimens for them etc it was my dream I, I walked into my dream you've got all these amazing books and then working for the Queensland Museum obviously you had just skeletons and skulls and your research and what it is that you were doing in there and I was just fascinating it was like I could have stayed there all day lucky you kicked me out <laughs> it's actually well Right now outside, it's 41 degrees. I've got the air conditioning on, but when it's too hot to be outside working, it's nice to go down in the study and put the air on and have a look at some interesting books or develop some insect specimens or prepare some skulls to send to the museum. And that, It's a nice thing to do on a hot summer's afternoon when it's very, very hot outside. Absolutely. I don't think I can handle your heat. I'm used to my humidity. So yeah, I'm not sure the dry heat is, is my, my kind of thing. But everyone's probably wondering who you are, what you do, and why do you have your own library and pretty much like museum pieces? And what do you do with the Queensland Museum? So maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you live for starters at Noonbar Station near Longreach there. Or is it in Longreach or near it? It's in the Longreach Shire. It's a two-hour drive to get to our nearest town, which is Longreach. But we live in the bottom end of the Longreach Shire, in the top end of the Queensland Channel Country, which is a really, really amazing part of the world. We, Karen and I, have a beef cattle property here that we run and raise beef cattle for, uh, well, Going back a step with that, just it is a very boom and bust part of the environment out here. We get extreme droughts, we mm. get very long dry periods. 
And then we get these huge wet events. We're in the Channel Country. We've got 50,000 hectares of that. About half of it goes underwater in a big flood event. So we might run anything between no cattle at all up to 3,000, but we try to run in very conservative numbers and look after our country and get good biodiversity outcomes for our country as well. So, yeah, it's a great part of the world, but it's a very harsh part of the world a lot of the time. It goes from being a, a fairy land in a big wet season to it's a bit more like the surface of Mars. In fact, you can look at photos of the surface of Mars and sometimes this country around here looks like that. I agree. When I was there, when was I there? Was it September? Uh, uh, August, September. Few months ago. Um, Winton was Winton was extremely, extremely dry, whereas Longreach was a little bit better. But um, you guys, yeah, your way was was still quite dry too. But you guys have, uh, hasn't that particular area been in drought for the last couple of years, but it was, you had a big flood, was it last year or the year before that just wiped out so much? Well, we had seven years straight of drought, but then we had a couple of good seasons and we've just had a little bit of rain and the river's running and we had a little bit of a flood in the creek. So the country looks quite nice here. But there's an area just south of Longreach now in their ninth year of drought. So just for people, just think about that. If you if you depend on the season for a livelihood and you have nine years straight of major drought, it cuts a fair hole in your working life, doesn't it? It'd be devastating, yeah. But that yeah. the issue with that uh, is that problem, well, the droughts are getting longer and hotter. It's all to do with anthropogenic climate change, but the, the seasons are getting more volatile. We get more violent storms and wet events, which the east coast of Australia has been seeing over the last couple of months, and then we get these huge, long, dry periods. So it's it's a harsh part of the world, but it's a pretty magic part of the world. It is magic, and when we came to stay on your uh, station, it was one of our favourite, actually, as a family. We had, we had absolutely no one around us. That's what I loved because we didn't see another human <laughs> apart from you guys. And then just being on... Um, on the river, which which river was that one? I can't remember the name of it. The Virgin and Channels. Um, that we camped on. Were you camped down on the Thompson River or over what? here on the Virgin and Channels? I can't remember. Uh, no, it was the Thompson River. Right. Yeah. That, that's a side water hole. It's yeah. a big yeah. permanent water hole. It's not the main channel, but it's a beautiful big water hole with, well, a couple of years ago lovely. we had some researchers working on turtles there and there's in excess of 500 turtles in that waterhole at that point in time when they were actually going through catching them and getting information from them and individually marking them. Yeah, right. 500, that's a lot. It is. <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to get you on for is, one, you caught my attention talking about dingoes um, and, and also your, um, your voice of of not being afraid to really voice what it is that you want to say. And that's what I loved about you. And I was like, I'm going to get you on this podcast, and especially with the dingoes. So I watched a couple of your interviews <laughs> and, and all the comments, all the comments that came through in regards to the dingoes. But also um, what we spoke about a little bit earlier was um, our amazing biodiversity within our country. And you, you have actually mentioned climate change as well. So there's so much happening and we've got so much here. And then we've, it, it, to me, when I look at all this, I just go, oh my gosh, it's a mess. And then the, the, the latest one that you, you've been um, interviewed on is um, 
Now, am I saying this right? Right? Is it fracking? Fracking. 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 It's fracking. when you what is when the fossil fuel industry drills holes with coal seam gas, which is a lot shallower gas. They frack between four and seven percent of the holes down here in the Channel Country with what they're proposing to do, chasing unconventional gas and unconventional oil in tight sands, etc. Every hole is three to four thousand meters deep, and every hole, hundred percent of the holes, cool. and fracking is just a process whereby they pump a range of different chemicals down. They they drill holes down and explode set off explosives down there to shatter the tight sands and tight rocks and then they pump down a range of chemicals which keeps those fractures open and allows it allows water to flow back up but it also liberates the gas and allows it to be pumped back up under extreme compressed air pressure so we can go into that more if we get the time but that is a major issue Floodplains mm. and, and river and rivers and watercourses of the Channel Country, and it's just not acceptable. We know enough these days about climate change that we shouldn't be doing it at all, and we definitely know enough that we shouldn't be doing it in these places. Mm. So there's so many there's so many things. I'm I'm not even really quite sure where to start here, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so maybe maybe I should just give it to you, Angus, and you can well, maybe. share with us what is going on. Maybe if we just start looking at the rangelands of Australia, and the rangelands are all the semi-arid and arid areas of Australia, it makes up a, oh, I don't know the exact figure, but 70 or 80% of the Australian continent is arid, arid and semi-arid. And a lot of it is used for pastoral production and different forms of agriculture. In Australia, there's more than 50% of the Australian continent is used for agriculture. So in the arid zone, primarily where there's what we call partialism, it's primarily either sheep grazing or cattle grazing. But one of the problems we're running into is through a whole heap of historical and current management practices, like pretty much the rest of Australia and like the rest of the world, our ecosystems are simplifying and declining. And mm. that is a major issue for biodiversity conservation. But it's, it's a lot bigger than that. To, mm. to actually have sustainability for humans on Earth, we have to feed them. And feed them, we have to have agriculture. And for us to have sustainable agriculture, it has to coexist and be part of functioning, fully functioning, fully processing ecosystems. Because when ecosystems start to decline and break down, ultimately we won't be doing agriculture in them either, and that means we won't be feeding ourselves in the future. So for those that say, oh, it's nothing to do with me, I would say it's if if you're one of those people that actually eat, and I haven't met many people that don't eat, but if you're one of those people that eat, it definitely applies to you. And how we treat the world mm-hmm. is a huge issue for for us, for our kids, for our grandkids, and for all the other species and ecosystems we share the planet with. We've got to start managing in a way that either holds or improves 
ecosystem functions, which at this stage are declining quite rapidly. So yeah. I guess with that, in Australia, we have a, a native canid or a native dog called the dingo. And the dingo, well, there's a lot of discussion around this, but the latest genetic studies show that the dingo has been here at least 8,000 years. And I can go into more detail about that if we get to it. But the dingo came in and took over the – well, no, I need to go back a step. Functioning ecosystems need <laughs> ex-predators. And in the oceans, you've got the whales and the sharks – and on land, you've got different apex predators in different parts of the world. Parts of the world, you've got the large cats, you've got tigers and jaguars and lions and wolves and bears. In Australia, we've got the dingo. When you actually take an apex predator out, using the jargon, you have a mesopredator release, which means take out the dingoes and you have... Foxes, cats, rabbits, all those sort of things get a real go on and they start destroying the environment. Cats and foxes are having a huge impact. In Australia, we've got an amazing assortment of native mammals, a lot of them marsupials, but there's a lot of native marsupials mm. as well. We've also got the dubious honour of having the largest rate of extinction of small mammals anywhere in the world over the last 200 years. And that's to do with... Shamefully. Yeah, shamefully. And a lot of that's to do, well, it's to do with a range of things. It's to do with changing changing the environment, cutting down forests, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the ongoing concern is we are trying to wipe out dingoes across Australia or parts of our governments and some of our agricultural industries would like to wipe out dingoes. And that is... And why is that? Well, dingoes are a major issue if you're running sheep or goats. Sheep and goat production does not go well with dingoes and much of the rangelands of Australia used to be used for sheep grazing. The saying is that Australia rode on the sheep's back for many years, the 50s, 60s, 70s. And the sheep industry were and still are a very strong lobby group and they've convinced everyone that matters, all the different governments and Australian Australian Wool Innovations and the Meat and Livestock mob that we're all better off if we actually get rid of the dingoes. But we've gone a step further than that. We've actually rebranded them and my industry has rebranded them as wild dogs and the reason for this is that in Australia we use a poison called 1080 which is a pretty horrific poison and we spread it pretty much across most of the Australian landscape and by, re by rebranding dingoes and calling them wild dogs it makes the population in general not quite so upset about the fact that we're baiting everywhere because it actually makes people think that this is a feral dog gone wild. And it's not. It's a native animal. It's the dingo. And there's a group of us, well, there's quite a few people now that run cattle 
that show that if you leave dingoes totally alone, there are huge benefits both to the ecosystems, to biodiversity conservation, but more specifically for the beef industry, it allows way more grass to grow. And one of the big issues in not having dingoes in the environment is, like not having wolves, when you take wolves out of parts of North America, the deer build up into large numbers and there's some really interesting studies mm. in Yellowstone, for instance, showing what happens when you let the wolves back and they bring the deer numbers back and just the stream health, the soil health, the whole change in what grows, it's a big, makes a huge difference. And the same thing happens with dingoes. And with dingoes, the, the animal that's being liberated is the kangaroo. Certain species of kangaroos, the red kangaroo, the grey kangaroo, wallaroos, a few species like that, have proliferated and they're in huge numbers in areas without dingoes. So if you're a beef cattle producer, if you don't bait and you don't persecute your dingoes, Instead of, well, dingoes, well, canids in general form family groups. And with the dingo, you've got an apex male and an apex female, and then you've got subordinate dogs under that. And when you've got them running as a family unit, they actually have a territory. They don't run tightly together all the time, but they come back to each other regularly. They cover a particular territory. But they protect that territory from any other feral dogs or any pig dogs that have been lost by pig shooters. And they also protect it against other dingoes coming in the area. So when you've actually got families of dogs established, they actually build up numbers very, very slowly because unlike domestic dogs, which cycle twice a year, Dingoes, when they're left alone in family groups, only cycle once a year, and it's only the apex female that has pups. If the subordinate females have pups, they'll be killed by the other members of the family group. And the other, it's a complex situation, but when left alone like this, they protect their territory, keep other dogs out, they keep the roo numbers low, and due to that, we've, here we've got a lot more grass, and... The whole system is coming back. We've been doing it for 20 years now, and the system's coming back, and the biodiversity conservation outcomes are great. You, when you're here, you see the number of birds. We've got we've recorded 200 different species of birds here so far, but we've got, just this last year we've uh, found, recorded three more species of mammals that we hadn't recorded here before. There's the rock rat one of the bats and a spinifex hopping mouse. So, and that is largely due to allowing dingoes to be in the landscape. But the issue around having dingoes in the landscape is that it's hugely, hugely controversial and there's very, very few landholders living today that, that manage land that have ever lived in a system where dingoes aren't persecuted. And mm. people just haven't lived in a system where they're living in family units and haven't seen the benefits of it. But one of the big issues is that it's actually illegal to not kill the dingoes on your place in most parts of Australia. 
the law says you Illegal to not kill. Yeah, legally, under the different state acts and legislation, you've got to control vermin. And in most states and most parts of the country, dingoes are classed as vermin, and you can actually be fined for not getting rid of them. On top of that, there's this huge air grip uh-huh. pressure from other people on the land because particularly, as I was saying, sheep and goats don't go well with dingoes. So in areas where the sheep and goats, you need to protect them with guardian animals, fences, and there's a range of different things you can do. But somehow we've got to the situation in Australia where the sheep industry, the sheep wool industry, has managed to convince everyone or nearly everyone that it's the responsibility of all of us to make sure we kill all the dingoes or all the wild dogs for the good of Australia. And it's actually having a huge detrimental impact on our ecosystems. There's a few other people, David Pollock in WA, and those of you in Australia that are listening, you've probably seen Dave and Francis on Australian Story. They've been twice. They've got a large place over in WA in Western Australia and they were going out the back door. The country was, there's parts of the country that are just a total mess from sheep overgrazing, the goats come in, the kangaroos, everything, the country is just a mess. Parts of Western New South Wales, parts of Western Queensland, quite a big area over in WA. It's just pretty much a moonscape because of lack of dingoes. Dave and Francis let the dingoes come back in. The roo numbers are down to about 5% of what they were. The feral goats, which were there in huge numbers, they've gone. The plants that they didn't even realise still existed in that part of the world are coming back. The river gums are regenerating. The waterholes are in good shape. There's just been a total transformation of the country. So what I did with the help of a few other people is started a social media group called Landholders for Dingoes. And what we're trying to do is actually, there's, there's a number of things we're trying to do with it, but number one, show that not only is it quite possible if you're in cattle country to leave the dingoes alone, it's actually very profitable to your industry and it's good for your ecosystems and it, well, just from, from our own position, Unlike most of the people around, we spend no time and we spend no money on feral animal control because the roos are right down in low numbers. The foxes have all gone. There's no foxes here anymore. There used to be sheep here up until 20 years ago and there's quite a lot of foxes. They've gone. Cats are down to very, very low numbers. You rarely see a track now. The goats, there was never many goats here, but there's a few turned up. The goats are gone. And the pig numbers, they don't get rid of pigs, but they certainly eat the piglets and the smaller pigs and they keep their numbers down. So over a not very long period of time, by leaving dingoes in the landscape, you can totally transform your landscape for the better. But there's from the different departments and other graziers and the wool industry, there's just huge pressure on people, anyone that dares suggest we do this. So myself and a few others are trying to actually get a more, get a discussion going on this, a national discussion, looking at what all the issues are and what the benefits are of leaving them alone in different areas and just saying that 
across the Australian landscape, we need a much more nuanced approach to how we handle dingoes because what we're doing at the moment is actually destroying our ecosystems and making it harder to make a living if you're running cattle. And, yeah, if you've got sheep or goats, it's a different story. But there's a lot of Australia that doesn't run sheep and goats. So it's highly complex. The other thing is people say, oh, the dingoes will kill your calves, they'll bite your calves. That happens when you bait and you end up with packs of young dogs. When you bait, you destroy that social structure and you have a certain amount of dogs and dingoes, well, a certain amount of dingoes that actually become very wary of baits or resistant to baits, they won't take them. And you end up with packs of young dogs running around doing what young anything does. If young people, you get them in groups with no, lots of time and nothing to do, they go around and have fun. And Dingo's way of having fun is going around killing sheep and goats. But when you've got the family units, you're, you're, the amount of calves that you actually have that get bitten by dingoes, it reduces to almost none. The other thing is if you've got cows that are used to dingoes, and cows that are living in country with families of dingoes, you've got more grass. The cows don't have to walk so far from food. They're used to dingoes, so they crash their calves up and one or two cows will stay with them and the others will wander into water, which they don't have to go as far. If you've got a landscape that's really dry and bare of feed, cattle might have to walk 15 kilometres. They leave their calves and by the time they get back, packs of dingoes will probably kill them. In a landscape where you leave them alone, that whole equation changes and you end up with basically no calf losses and you end up with a lot more grass and you end up with a lot more biodiversity conservation outcomes. So it's not only the individual businesses that benefit. Australia as a whole benefits and agriculture as a whole benefits. And it's just something we need to actually have a national discussion about and we need to get all the science on the table and actually make these sort of decisions on how we handle the broader landscape based on hard science and not just on made-up stories from the past. <laughs> made-up stories from the past. So with a, with a couple of things that you've um, said, for, for starters, for the poison, um, so it's called 1080, is that correct? Yes, it's a thing. I'm just trying to remember. It's monofluoroacetate, I think, and I maybe mightn't have it quite correct. And it's actually a naturally occurring compound in quite a few native plants. And people say, oh, it's okay. natural and it's all good. But the reality is the stuff that we use for poisoning dingoes and pigs and rabbits and even roos in Tasmania is a synthetic form of it, which is much more toxic. And if you listen to listen to the stories that come out of my industry, they'll say that it's very selective and doesn't harm anything else. But science doesn't support that. It actually has a great deal of harm to the whole environment, apart from the fact that it destroys dingo families. It's, it's pretty nasty stuff. On top of that, the amount of people's... Mm family dogs and working dogs and pet dogs that get killed by this stuff is just disgusting. I hate the stuff. I'm so happy we don't have it on this place. 
Yeah, that 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 was my question. Is it is it is it used by the government or the farmers? And is it individual choice by farmers or is it a government? Like, is it a yeah? And also, I I wanted to know basically how does it actually kill the the dogs? Uh, um, and how does it kill the dingoes? Because that's that's hot. Like I'm just thinking of a really cruel is, kind of way of is, dying, obviously with poison. It's very thinking of rats. When you think of rats and mice being poisoned, they basically get cooked from the inside out. Pretty, pretty so, much the same. So just going back a step, it yeah, is right. it is it's an S seven poison, which is the highest level you go, and it's controlled by government. And if you want to bait dingoes. You actually, most local government areas have a wild dog controller and it's their job to break the chemical down and come out and inject it into the meat. And it's a lovely job. You've got to get a lot of old horses or roos or pigs or something and cut up all this horrible meat because Mm. a lot of the time it's not refrigerated because of the bulk you're talking and then you bait it all and then you've got to, either drive around and throw it out or, in most cases, it's taken up in a plane and dropped broadly across the landscape. And most, well, I don't know what the different laws are in every state in Queensland. It's our, supposedly, it's our obligation as landholders to get rid of wild dogs, which, once again, they're not wild dogs, they're dingoes. And there's campaigns through the year, whereas the different local government areas will actually do a huge baiting program and they'll have planes and everyone comes and everyone spreads their baits across the landscape and those even bigger areas further out, the planes go out and spread it. But it's really interesting. There are – it's a reason we started – this discussion and started landholders for dingoes is there are quite a few people out there that don't believe in 1080 and know the problems with it. But the peer group pressure and the flack they cop for not doing it is so great that I know of people that actually go along for the baiting days with their drums and get their drums some meat that have been baited and they take it home and they drop it down a deep hole they've already got dug and fill it, cover it over. They do that because it makes them look as though they're being good citizens and fitting in with the rest of the area, even though they don't want to bait. They, there's so much pressure that they go to that length to actually look like they're fitting in with the community. Wow. Yes, wow. I can see that, yeah. So David, yeah. David Pollock, <laughs> was just, he's got a really, he's got a better way with words than me, but he was saying that, there's a lot of pressure saying, oh, you've got to fit in with your, with your social area, you've got to be a good citizen, et cetera, et cetera. And he says something along the lines of, yes, that's correct, but there's a greater there's a greater role for people on the land and that is to actually do the right thing over the longer term for the health of the landscape and not putting out 1080 and in cattle country leaving dingoes alone is a higher level societal responsibility than fitting in with the current dogma around all dingoes are wild dogs and all dingoes are bad and all dingoes should be killed. So if 
you've just explained how important dingoes are as land apex predators. And so if this is part of science and ecologists and biologists and naturalists are, are talking about this and and can show and prove this, like as you were talking about in parts of, I think it was Western Australia, um, where it's, it's was it Western Australia where it's come back where they've actually? Um, well, it's actually uh, coming back. Well, it's coming back everywhere dingoes are left alone. But just Dave Pollock, David Max's yeah. place, Woolen Station in WA in Western Australia. Yeah, it was WA, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, a very, yeah. very good example of going from a totally, mm. well, I was talking about a country that looks like the surface of Mars. It's a very good example of going from that to a healthy Australian rangelands landscape that's supporting a whole range of plants and mm. animals that depend on it. And it's, it's that big a difference. And if you go so if, that can- if you go for a drive through Western New South Wales, a lot of Western New South Wales is crawling with goats, it's crawling with rabbits, and it pretty much is a moonscape as well. It, well, Marscape, a lot of Western New South Wales in, is in horrific shape because of the way it's being managed and lack of an apex predator. So as I was saying earlier, if we want... So you can prove this, like it, it, it can be seen, like it's been seen right now. Well, so there's, why- there's been research done on either side. Well... Going back a step again, in Australia we've got what we used to call the dingo barrier fence and it's over 5,000 kilometres long and it was built to separate sheep country in the southeast from the hordes of wild dogs, or there were still dingoes back there when they started building it, of coming in and wiping out the sheep. And there's research done on both sides of that fence showing that on the side with the dingoes, it's more than just biodiversity coming back. The soil health is improving. There's a big difference in the actual health right, of the yeah. soil either side of the fence. There's a heap of science, but the science on its own just doesn't cut it because there's so much pressure from my industry right. to make sure that the status quo continues. That There's a lot of scientists out there putting a lot of good science out, but it, it's just not making it, making it into the policy sphere where it actually gets acted on and that's why we're why we started this social media group i've published papers in in different journals dave bollock's doing the same thing we've got a friend of ours gil campbell down near mitchell in queensland he's he was convinced he's straight out cattle breeding operation he was convinced to bait quite a lot of years ago and he saw quick downward trend in his land and all the issues that went with it and he's gone back to not baiting and he, he said he'd rather have both legs broken than go back to baiting his dingoes. Yeah, right. But there's a huge wow, so there's a huge amount of pressure on people that don't conform to yeah. the current status quo and that's why a few of us are sticking our heads up and saying we do have all this good science we need to have a discussion. We need to have a more nuanced approach to dingoes across the landscape, both for the good of the cattle industry and the good of our eco- health of our ecosystems and for improving biodiversity conservation outcomes on huge areas of the rangelands of Australia. So that's all, that, that, that sounds great. It's all good and well and, and getting, getting the education out there, the awareness out there and standing up. 
However, what, like, what's next? Like, it, it, this is this is what I get. Like, sometimes I go, okay, this is great, and we can prove this part and this, and this is happening around the world and so forth. Okay, who's going to listen and who's going to change this, and how do we change this from a, a as a, a bigger scale? Or uh, uh, this is where I just kind of go, oh, I'm just going to go hide in my rainforest. Because is change going to happen, and who is in charge of actually the change? Like, how how do how do you do this, Angus? Well, <laughs> like to me, it's it, to me it makes sense. It makes sense to me, and 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 yeah, you know, you've got a lot of um, farmers coming on board, and they they see it from that perspective too, but also conforming a little bit, but then going behind the government's back to do what they can to protect. Um, what they can see but these people making these decisions and and obviously they're being called wild dogs and all these changes happening but but what now what do we what happens well change never happens quickly and change in the australian bush happens very Mm. very slowly because we're a very conservative lot but the reality is if we keep putting the information out there if we keep having discussions if we keep having good ecologists doing studies and showing the difference between having them and not having them. And also part of what we need to do is help the sheep industry because it's a real issue for them. We need to help them put in place practices both from the government level and local government level and just from societal level. We need to help them deal with the issues that they struggle with mm. with regard to dingoes. We need – it's not – what I thought, more the say, industry. Can't yeah. just say, oh, we're just going to stop baiting them everywhere. But we do need to yeah, stop yeah. baiting. But we need to put in place processes that allow dingoes to survive and thrive in parts of the landscape where sheep aren't. And we need parts of the landscape where sheep and goats are run. We actually need to work out ways to help them deal with that. But I make the analogy, if you go across mm-hmm. to my wife, Karen, from Kai. You go across to Mackay and you've got the lychee farms there and you've got them under nets. They actually have a business raising lychees and they put them under nets because if they don't, the flying foxes come in and eat them all. But we don't have... Absolutely, they're delicious. Yeah, but we don't have a program across Australia to wipe out all the flying foxes to support the lychee growing industry. We actually put in place a process to protect them. And you go down to Tasmania and you'll see different crops, different fruits and things netted in everywhere. But just talking about Tasmania for a second, the sheep industry in Tasmania drove a program that caused the extinction of the Tasmanian tiger. Tasmanian tiger was also an apex predator for that part of the world. Ever since the Tasmanian tiger disappeared, disappeared from Tasmania, there's been huge numbers of wallabies breeding up and now they spend half their time, well, they even use 1080 for baiting wallabies down there, but shooting wallabies, baiting wallabies, netting them out of their crops. And it just shows that when you take an apex predator out, it has unintended consequences that are almost always highly detrimental to ecosystem ecosystem health over the longer term. So we actually have the science, we have the understanding now to know these things. 
and we actually now need to get a policy platform that we actually start acting on it. But in doing that, it's not just saying ban 10A, it's having a whole discussion about a more nuanced approach and supporting those people with small stock that can't work with dingoes. And in the broader landscape, actually using dingoes not only for ecosystem health, but also ecosystem health and biodiversity conservation outcomes, but also in actually making it a lot easier for cattle producers to do their business. And as I said here, after 20 years of leaving dingoes alone totally, brew numbers are very low and we've got a lot more grass, fatter cattle, and we spend no time and no money on feral animal control, unlike many people who spend sleepless nights and all their money and all their time trying to keep the foxes down, keep the cats down, oh, keep the dingoes down because, of, as I said before, when you destroy those family units, all the bets go out the window and you've got a major problem. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. So you just made a decision for you as the landholder to not bait the dingoes is was is is that what happened for you guys okay well here at noombar noombar was first turned into a property in its own right it was cut off one of the big super properties it was cut off virgin station which is still a million acres virgin but noombar was cut off in 1914 and up until 20 years ago it was a combination of sheep and cattle here but 20 years ago, Karen and I took over sole ownership and we here at Noombar, we're in semi-arid, mulberry, Gigi woodland and they're fairly fragile, red to earth, a lot of them when you get out of the channels. And I didn't like what sheep were doing to the landscape here, so we got rid of the sheep. And as soon as we got rid of the sheep, we stopped persecuting dingoes. And it only takes a couple of years and you see the huge difference in the landscape and it's been improving ever since it's made a huge difference and just an example of it but slightly different example Longreach is 130 kilometers in a straight line straight up the river the Thompson River which flows down into Cooper's Creek and becomes one of the major desert rivers in the world but we get these major floods come down from Longreach well down the Thompson River, and in the old days, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, well, up until the late 80s, anyhow, there were huge numbers of sheep in this area and huge numbers of sheep in the river. And the landscape in the river was totally bare, except for trees and shrubs that were too high for the sheep to reach, and it was tracked in hard. And we'd get a flood, and the peak of the flood would take three days to get from the bridge at Longridge to the bridge here at Tarkin. So since the sheep, the wool floor price fell out and most people converted to cattle and then the dingoes came back into a lot a lot of the area and now people people out on the other side of the river in the Mitchell Grass Downs are putting up fences to run sheep. But down the river you can't put the fences up, you can't put big exclusion fences up because the rubbish builds up on them and washes them away. So for the last 20-odd years... 
there's been basically no sheep running in the river between here and Longridge, and it's gone, well, the visual, when you actually look at it visually, it's totally different. There's a lot of, there's a lot of herbs, there's a lot of blue bushes, a lot of plants right through it, but not only that, it's mm. become really soft and deeply cracking. So, as I was saying, when the sheep were there, the flood peak would come in to Longridge and take three days to get to here. It takes seven to eight days now, same water, but because of the change in landscape oh. and how we manage it, it now takes seven to eight days for that water to come through. And it's also reasonably clear now. Back then it was just very muddy. So it just shows how oh. the broader landscape can either improve or degrade in quality depending on how we manage it. And if we want to be sustainable into the future and want to continue eating, ecosystems across the world, we actually have to get them into an upward trend because most of them at the moment are in a downward trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary stuff. So when did um, when did the dingoes get changed to native dog? Uh, sorry, yeah, is it native dog? Wild dogs. Yeah, well, Wild dog, sorry. It was a conscious decision by the industry pretty much when we started to landscape scale bait because you can understand the broader community getting a little bit upset at throwing this horrible chemical right across the landscape to kill a native animal. So we changed it from being a native animal to being wild dog, which supposedly means feral dog. But that's really interesting Mm. because Dr Kylie Cairns from down in New South Wales, University of New South Wales, she has been doing, well, she's a leading geneticist working on dingoes at the moment. And early last year, the year before, she put out a paper looking at the genetic results collected from five, over 5,000 dingo samples from across the country. And only 1% of those samples from right across Australia were feral dogs, and feral dogs means domestic dogs that are out in the wild. But the rest of them, well, 90% of them were 50% dingo through to pure dingo. And that just shows, number one, that the dingoes in Australia are dingoes. They're not feral dogs. And the other thing is when you leave them alone in family units, they don't breed with farm dogs and they don't breed with pig dogs. All canids across the world can breed with all other canids, but they don't. There's ecological barriers in place with their family structures and how they operate that stops them breeding with different species. So dingoes left alone don't breed outside the dingoes at all. So when left alone in family groups, groups, they rapidly turn back into being dingoes and acting like dingoes and providing mm. the ecosystem function. But we call them wild dogs to make it look as though we're doing the community a service and getting rid of these wild dogs, feral dogs. And they're not feral dogs. They're definitely not wild dogs. Wild dogs are a species with three subspecies that occur in Africa. There's no wild dogs in Australia. Yes. And there's very, very few feral dogs. The other interesting thing is if you took look at feral dogs, there is no population anywhere in the world of feral dogs that actually live in the wild and self-perpetuate. They actually breed, form their own groups and continue to breed and continue to be sustainable. Well, 
to actually have a process where they can continue. You get you get packs of wild dogs, packs of feral dogs around community centres, particularly in the southeast and the east. But they don't form breeding populations that actually take over the landscape. There was one population of feral dogs in the Galapagos Islands that was self-sustaining for a while, but they're gone. So there's no self-sustaining population of feral dogs anywhere in the world. And the dingoes in Australia are dingoes. And we need to call them dingoes and we need to start using best science to manage them accordingly. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, uh, when people think about dingoes, especially uh, people overseas, they think of the dingoes that are on Fraser Island. And those particular ones end up being in the media because they've attacked a, uh, someone due to being fed. Um, so with, with the, the media side of things in regards to dingoes, they, don't, they certainly don't play a positive role, obviously. I mean, when the media do... Uh, sometimes they do, I suppose, but it's it, they do paint that picture to the general community or, or the general public and then overseas visitors are excited to see them because it's something different. However, let's talk about like with the Fraser Island population, um, those particular ones, you know, it's they're being used as, as a portrayal of they're dangerous and it's just another animal in Australia that can kill you. Um, what's your opinion on, on the Fraser Island population? I've had long talks with successive environment ministers in Queensland about the Fraser Island dingoes, and my initial comment is that there's not a dingo problem on Fraser Island, there's a people problem. And the people problem <laughs> is the fact that Correct. the people actually feed the dingoes and they become habituated and they yeah. become very comfortable with people. And the other thing is they're a hunter and if there's kids there and the kids run away, they'll chase them. Same as you have a dingo here. If you see a kangaroo run away from a dingo, what does it do? It chases it. it same with sheep. It loves chasing things that are in the size range of something that you can catch and kill. So it's a people problem and it's difficult on Fraser Island, but the dingoes oh. do belong there, the people are visitors, the dingoes are inhabitants, they're a native animal, but we need to work out ways to allow the two to coexist. But the current system we're using that's killing numerous dogs, is once again, it's destroying that family structure and making the problem worse, not better. Yes. But the other thing to note, yes. the other yes. thing to note on top of that is once you get away from areas where dingoes are highly habituated from constant exposure to people, they're a very shy and retiring animal and I, I've spent many, many nights in the desert in a swag and dingoes aren't an issue. The main thing with dingoes when you're out camping in the bush is to make sure you put your boots and hats up somewhere, your hat and your boots up somewhere because they love picking them up and wandering off with them. They smell good. But I've on numerous occasions spoken up and had a dingo wandering through camp or just standing over, over me looking at me. They won't touch you, but as soon as they know you're awake, they're gone. But it's the same thing with Aboriginal people. They used to hang around on the peripheries of camps and get a few tidbits of food and they came habituated and then they learned to live with the Aboriginal people. They weren't domesticated. They've never been domesticated. But 
they actually found it worked for both sides to live together and Aboriginals used it for hunting and they got a feed out of it and there's a very long association with Aboriginal people and dingoes and there's quite a few Aboriginal people now getting involved in this discussion and they're pretty sick of the dingo being painted as a feral animal and a pest when it's part of their dreaming and part of their tradition and Mm-hmm. I think the other really big fairy tale about dingoes, and even in the scientific community, there's still robust taxonomic work happening, but the latest genetic work shows that dingoes and the New Zealand, sorry, the New Guinea singing dog and the New Guinea highland dog are very, very closely related, and they would have been intermixing somewhere in the last glacial maxima when the sea levels were a lot lower and there was a land bridge between New Guinea and Australia. Those three species were intermixing and they've since separated and speciated. But the story is that dingoes came over with the early trepangas and others that came from Southeast Asia and they're a combination of village Southeast Asian village dogs and Southeast Asian wolves. And genetically, there's no truth to that. The dingo is quite unique, has quite unique genetics, along with the two species in New Guinea, and they're connected with ancient proto dogs from right up in northeastern Asia, way back in the midst of time. And the whole story genetically hasn't been unraveled yet, but they didn't come from Southeast Asia and they weren't introduced by both people from Southeast Asia. But we we're still a long way from knowing the full story, but that is the myth that's put out. And people will say, oh, they're a domestic dog. Number one, they're not a dog. Number one, they're not related to the wolves. And they are a native animal. They're a native animal in New Guinea and they're a native animal here. We always just see so much negativity when it comes to the Fraser Island um, population there. And and it's real sad, um, you know, just hearing you speak that there's there's so much conflict between humans and wildlife but then humans and our environment and um, the effects that it has on biodiversity and like you like what you said in the end everything comes down to us like we 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 need to eat so we need you know we live off the land um, but it's just not done in such a sustainable way and then things like this happen and then let's poison dingoes and then as you've explained so well is that um, effect on our environment, the ecosystem, the biodiversity, by taking out that land apex predator. I mean, we we actually talk about this a lot in regards to the estuarine crocodile within river systems and the, the big flow on effect. And it's it's just where how do, how do we get to a point, Angus, of being able to put this awareness out and the education for farmers for general people for people like myself for my, my next door neighbor how do we create this relationship with nature and and humans what, what do we need to do I mean you you work you work in so many different facets of all of this it's what what's your solution it's, uh, yeah I don't, I, I don't have <laughs> it's one of those we've just got to continue with education and making people understand that we're not divorced from the landscape. Our future is very much tied into having a sustainable landscape and apex predators are part of it. And estuarine crocodiles are a good example and you keep getting 
bobcat are going on about this an explosion of crocodile numbers and the threat. The reality is they're starting to return to the level that they were supposed to be at prior to being mm-hmm. hunted almost to extinction. And they're very important. They're an apex predator and they help maintain those estuarine ecosystems. It's the same with the dingoes. But but how do we get there? I don't know. Different religions around the world treat nature differently. Our Judeo-Christian religions are very much about we own the landscape and we own everything in it. It's our role to control it, whereas other religions see themselves as being actually being part of the landscape, belonging to it, not owning it and not being above it. And I, I find that whole Judeo-Christian attitude to land, it's a major problem to, well, it's a major problem for our ability to live sustainably into the future to start with. But there's so many issues around it. I think all we can do is keep talking about it and more we're doing a lot of science and doing a lot of studies and getting it published and getting it out there. And the more people that we have, like Professor Richard Kings, who the Professor you and Richie out there doing podcasts and interviews and actually explaining to people exactly what ecosystems are and why they're so important for us to keep them in good ecological health and keep them on an upward trend, not a downward trend, and mm. the future's tied to it. I think we just need to keep discussing it. But just going back to a comment you made there before about all the dangerous animals in Australia, I just laugh about that. If you go to North America, you've got bears and you've got wolves anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, you've got those animals. In Africa, you've got all the big cats and bears. And In Australia, we've got, we've got some dingoes. We've got, you don't go and camp on the edge of water in northern Australia because you've got crocodiles. But if you're sensible, crocodiles are no issue for you for you at all, except on Fraser Island. Dingo. Exactly. The dingoes are no issue. I've been living in a swag half my life and snakes are not an issue, spiders are not an issue. Occasionally you'll get someone bitten. But the reality is there's not many places in the world that are more yeah. benign than Australia to go out and camp in the bush. But despite our, our reputation for being such a dangerous place, it really is. It's a really, really great place to get out in the bush and camp and have a good time. And you, 99.999% of the time, you're totally safe. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. Australia is absolutely amazing. And like you said, there's so many different types of ecosystems and habitats and it's completely diverse. And um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the good old movies and media and that portraying certain animals as dangerous it's just common sense you obviously you're going to understand danger you're an adult like use your common sense but um the fear is is unrealistic um that's that's a story that's being created um yeah of course there's dangers dangers when you hop in your car like um but here in north queensland we have those problems with um yeah, like, you know, like the bobcatters of the world who who are seeing, yeah, there's more crocodiles around. However, when we do the educations within schools or even, even when we get an opportunity to speak to adults at, say, a library talk or maybe even we're in a shopping centre doing a talk, even getting them to understand that, you know, little baby crocodiles, if we, if we start removing the eggs, we're removing so many other animals' food sources and people don't see that. 
they don't get that. But then when you start talking about it, they're like, oh, I didn't see it from that perspective of understanding that little baby crocodiles feed barramundi or maybe um, other fish or the eggs, um, you know, they're dug up by parentes or whatever, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it's it's actually like like what you said, talking about it and educating and then that creates a spark of curiosity in people. But it's I think for me from, you know, being in, in the science world as well, it's understanding how we can come to certain decisions within the government, like what's happening around like the Lake Air Basin and all the channel countries at the moment with, I always say it wrong, fracking. 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 F-R-A-C-C-I-N-G, fracking. Yeah, fracking. So how, how, like how does those things happen? You know, like yes, we can have, as much education as we want out there and, and help our, our individual species or even particular habitats and ecosystems within within um, communities. But then we've got the government going to make these crazy-ass decisions and the next minute you know we've got another big problem on our hands. My, my, uh, suggest- so what- my suggestion with the Lake Air Basin process and what's going on is we probably need to have another talk in the new year because it's a very long subject. But just going... To turtle eggs and crocodile eggs. Another huge issue that's happening in the world right at the moment is through ecosystem decline, we're having a crash, a total crash in insect numbers across the world. And in Australia, we've just declared the bogon moth moth as endangered. And I don't think many people actually understand the huge ecological impacts of insect numbers crashing and how they're the actual base of the whole food chain and how our actual lives yep. and livelihoods depend on that into the longer term. Absolutely. Yes. That's something we learn in school. Uh, that's, that's, that's a talk I believe that we actually do in year five and six. Yep is um, talking talking about the importance of insects as a food source for other animals but then how to how do they also play a role in in the ecosystem and habitats in pollination and and all those things and you know even the ki- even asking a simple question of the kids having a bearded dragon in front of them and saying well this little fella mainly eats insects however he eats some dandelion flowers and stuff in the wild but if there's no insects to pollinate the dandelion flowers what do you think is going to happen to freddy the bearded dragon and they all just look at him and just go yep. oh my god and the next minute you know, it's a it's really amazing, Angus, is to see like, you know, twelve year olds just suddenly stand up and start changing things around a school environment and getting teachers to listen that this is a big problem because you remember Freddie in the classroom, you know, he it, we we've got to save them. And getting that generation to see that and there's lots of children now standing up and, and wanting to make changes. Um, I really do hope that when they become adults changes already started you know that it's not going to take another 50 years for everything to get to a point that it's at no return you know that's what worries me anyway it worries me a lot too and it's probably something to talk about in more depth in a further discussion down the track Mm. if you actually look at the backgrounds background occupations of our politicians there's basically no scientists in there at all. Most of them no. law, economics, or lifetime in the political system. 
mm-hmm. and that's yes. a huge issue because yep. they're the ones that are actually setting the policy for all of us. So somehow the sciences need to get more involved in politics and I'm, I don't know who's going to stick their hand up because I've had a little bit. I've never been a politician, but I've had a lot to do with politics and it's not a I wouldn't. I don't want to be a politician. It's such a horrible, dirty business. And someone there doing it, but we need to address the balance and actually get policy that's going to be sustainable into the longer term. And we actually need science and scientists involved in the legal process to make that happen. Because at the moment, they're pretty much excluded. Science is supposed to come out with a few facts to support politicians when they want them and shut up the rest of the time. And I'm afraid that's leading to very bad outcomes mm-hmm. for the whole world, actually. Absolutely. And I also feel that at, um, it, that at times it can be quite a, a negative um, uh, view on scientists be, be, uh, at times, like because of that, you know, um, you know, even I have had that thought at times going, yeah, but science should this and science should that and blah, 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 blah. However, then a decision is made and then they use science for the decision. And I'm like, hang on a minute, that can't be right. That's How does this even happen? So if I'm starting to think about that, imagine like general public, and then then, then they'll, they'll take what the government is saying as in they have consulted so many scientists from around Australia to make their decision, but yet it's quite it's so negative that how can they have? Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure they're like what you said before. I'm sure there's scientists out there who who will back up some parts of the government. But I guess that's another big controversial kind of topic. That's probably a whole podcast in itself. But it at times people don't trust science because it is so messy and, and can be confusing, mm. and when government are making decisions based on science well who's where, where's that coming from what evidence do they have of that exactly and there's a real lack of understanding of what science is and science is not about proving things science is about disproving things and if there's a hypothesis put up Constantly. and enough scientists spend enough time trying to prove it's wrong and they can't it means it's very likely correct and that's pretty much how science operates but that doesn't polit- it doesn't fit our current political systems and it doesn't fit how we make decisions. And we can't go into it in depth now, but if you just look at the Lake Air Basin where we've had a process over the last 20 years with some of the best scientists in the world working on it, and it's just a huge body of evidence saying how we should manage the Lake Air Basin, but it's just totally ignored by government. So science, science is there yeah. to underpin policies when they want it to, but doesn't mean they're going to accept the actual yes. science, even if it's overwhelmingly providing evidence that what they're doing is not a good, good way forward. They'll still pick a little mm-hmm. bit of science from somewhere and try and justify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. And I think more so now at the end of 2021, there's a lot of people asking like, well, what is science? <laughs> That big question of what is science and, and you've explained it perfectly in regards to you're always trying to prove, you know, and then someone will come through with a PhD and someone will come in and grab that and go, well, I'm going to disprove that now or I'm going to prove this or that so forth. So it's constantly being questioned and hypothesised. And 
all that. There's matters. also this whole conspiracy theory about all these scientists are getting together and trying to con us. The scientists are the last people in the world that get together. Their whole future and livelihood is predicated <laughs> on proving either doing original work themselves or doing work to prove that others have got it wrong. They just Yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> I'm gonna grab that bit of information. I'm gonna prove you wrong, buddy, and I'm gonna spend twenty years doing that. <laughs> so that's yeah, there's no grand conspiracy, I can assure them. Well, basically there's no grand conspiracies anywhere. There's a lot of conspiracy theorists around, but the reality is if you share a secret with more than one person, it's no longer a secret. The actual ability to have grand conspiracies involving large numbers of people and organisations, it's just not possible. Yeah. Uh, it's all fascinating. its uh, I, I love it all. I love it all. All the controversy stuff too, controversial stuff. Um, so I will get you back in 2022 then, Angus, because we've got a lot to talk about actually. Another person would be really great to get on and I'd love to listen to you doing a podcast with him is Professor Richard Kingston from the University of New South Wales mm-hmm. and amongst other things... He has been doing surveys, aerial surveys of water birds over eastern Australia for the last 30 years. Even in his year of COVID, he's managed to do it. It was very challenging, but he's still done, done it. And he's showing this major downward trend in water birds across Australia, which fits into this whole ecosystem health that we've just been talking about. But it'd be he'd be a really interesting person for you to have a chat with. Yeah, definitely. I'll track him down. Yes, um, and next year I would love to learn a little bit more about um, the Channel Country and what's happening out at Lake Air Basin and I'm sure by then there will be a lot more things that I've thought about. I always reflect after conversations and go, oh, I should have asked that, I should have asked this. So we'll definitely, definitely, definitely get you back on. Um, but we have been talking for over an hour now, so that went really fast. <laughs> so I, I, I just I love we're probably. I, I love dingoes. I love that. <laughs> probably boring everyone silly by now, but it, yeah. No. Uh, I think it's a fairly. I don't care. It's a fairly important subject talking about the sustainability of ecosystems and how important they are for our for our continued existence. It is one of the. It's it's the most important, and it, it's something that baffles me when I talk more and more with people. I just say, okay, great. This. Okay, yep, I know the problem, that's the problem, so now what do we do? <laughs> and it's like, um, right, <laughs> let's educate more and, and hope for the best and create change within our own communities and our own backyard, um, hopefully, you know, within the farming industry, exactly what you've just done as well within Noonbar Station um, and and then hopefully other others will will take take that on hopefully people listening to this podcast will create other other conversations with people and the curiosity is there so um what i'll do angus is i'm sure people will have questions so if you don't mind i'll put um your facebook page up and any other links that people can contact join like an email address or something like that where people can reach out and find out a little bit more about who you are and what you do um you can pass that on to me later with what you would like to have within the podcast notes so I can put that there for everyone. But otherwise, um, I'm going to let you go. Have a, an amazing Christmas and enjoy some family time. I heard your daughter is is coming back to see you guys. Just landed in Brisbane, so I'm sure you'll be busy soon. 
So I'd like Jodie to end up with two messages. Number one, Merry Christmas, everyone. Have a great time. It's been a very difficult couple mm-hmm. of years, but still have a great time and mm-hmm. keep your family close and all that sort of thing. But the other message is for everyone, don't be scared to stand up. Use science, use logical thinking, use data, but stand up and be counted. It, we really need a lot more people out there to have these public discussions mm. to disseminate information, and there's no use abusing people. You actually, act, you, we need to have data, we need to have logical thinking, and we need to have people prepared to stand up and discuss things. And you can do that without getting into a fight or being rude to people, but just stand up and be counted. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you, Angus. That's a perfect way to end. And I love that you said logical thinking. And also, you know, come at it with curiosity. Yep. You know, you could learn, you could be learning something from somebody else's perspective or the data that they may have seen on their, um, their, their land. Uh, and, and together we can actually learn more and use logical thinking to create change. So I think that would be, that's an awesome way to end it. And yes, Merry Christmas. And um, you take care and say hi to Karen and hopefully we will see you up here in North Queensland sometime soon. We'll catch up. We'll let you know when we're coming up and we'll catch up. For sure, for sure. All right, we'll speak soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Merry Christmas, Jody. Merry Christmas. Bye. Wow, another awesome wild chat, which I hope you really enjoyed because I can tell you now I absolutely did. I would really love to connect with you all as well. So please don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram, which you can get the links in our podcast show notes. I have them right there for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us by spreading the word. You can also take a screenshot of the episode you just listened to, share it on your socials and tag us in it, of course. We would also love a review. If you have time, please jump on your podcast channel you just listened to us on and give us a review, give us some feedback and don't forget to click that big subscribe button which of course helps us spread the word even further and for you to also be notified for any upcoming episodes. If you are somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who would love to be on our Australian Wildlife Education Wild Chats please send them my way or get in contact with me. Also in the show notes, you can find all those details on how to get in contact. I love chatting and also learning from others who can showcase their knowledge, their expertise, but also their passion and any projects that they might have going on. So please reach out to me as I would love to get you on our podcast. But otherwise, I hope you're all amazing. I hope you're all having a great day. And I will, you'll be hearing from me in the next wild chat. See you next week. Bye.